Well, comrade, what now? Straightforward conversation. Nice. Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. Yo, what's up, everybody? I'm the other co-host. My name is Drew. How you doing? (laughs) Is that a joke to you, Albert? Is my name funny to you? Why are you laughing at me, son? Uh, Again, this was one of those instances where I thought you were going to break out into rhyme, so I was just... Waiting to see what you would rhyme Drew with. My name is Drew. I like to go to school. (laughs) (laughs) When I'm finished with school, I like to go to the poo. (laughs) How's that? (laughs) All right. Man, maybe you should change your name to Drew. (laughs) (laughs) Grandmaster Flash, eat your heart out. So this week, we are going back to our monthly read-through of Deadly Class. Uh, We are in September, so that would mean that we are reading Volume Mm 9. Drew, you mind giving the good people a little bit of background information? All right. We're covering Deadly Class, Volume 9, Bone Machine. As always... Deadly Class is co-created by writer Rick Remender and artist Wes Craig. It is colored by Jordan Boyd, lettered and logo designed by our boy Russ Wooten. Ain't no clown like the Wooton clown. And edited by Bria Skelly and Will Dennis. So I guess that's the change here in the credits because... Up to this point, it's been Sebastian Gerner editing, and I, I believe Bria Skelly came on a volume or two ago. But now we see that Gerner has been replaced by Will Dennis, and I'm guessing that's probably because Gerner around this time probably went to TKO Studios, where I believe he is now editor-in-chief there. So Whoa. I'm guessing that's, that's a, why he ended up leaving the book. Kind of a big move, you know? Yeah. King of the Playground over there. Mm-hmm. TKO does some good stuff. I like all the things from them that I've read. Yeah. They had a pretty uh, exclusive model that was meant to gin up a lot of hype and attention. And it builds in a little bit of uh, scarcity into their model. You know, and it doesn't help. I mean, it doesn't hurt that they have good creative talent behind them as well so yeah yeah exactly they they got some good stuff over there yeah definitely so volume nine of deadly class collects issues 40 through 44 the trade paperback edition was originally released in june of 2020 anyway before we start our discussion of deadly class i wanted to give you guys a small update because I think Albert has mentioned this is our remend year where we've been going through not only deadly class, but also rereading or reading for the first time, various other Rick remender comics. 
We covered Seven to Eternity earlier this year, and Albert's talked also about some of the other stuff that he's read. Uh, what was it? Low? That was one of them, right? And some other Rick Remender comics? Yeah. This was the year that I finally completed a bunch of my Rick Remender, uh, you know, a bunch of my Rick Remender collections. I, I finally completed the the comics that I was missing. So I finally had a chance to go and read through them. I just decided to do a massive Rick Remender run in our Remond year of, of comics reading. Hashtag Remond year. Um, <laughs> so I did read low. Uh, I also read Black Science. I read his Tokyo Ghost. Um, yeah, and I'm in the middle of reading his Deadly Class right now. Uh, I'm trying to think. I think I've finished. I haven't posted anything on Instagram about it. I do want to. I just things just keep coming up, and but I do want to try to put, you know, a little bit of attention uh, on on the things that I've re- read and just kind of let the good people who follow us know just what my thoughts are on mm-hmm. those comics. And his work in general. Yeah. And I also recently read one of his older comics. It's The End League. That was a nine-issue Dark Horse series that came out around 2008-2009. That one was a pretty solid series. Like The premise is that it's about... uh, It's basically a big two pastiche where he takes... He creates these analogs of recognizable DC and Marvel heroes and mashes them up together on a team, a superhero team, in a post-apocalyptic scenario. So they're in a world in which the villains actually won, and these guys are the only heroes left. So it's it's kind of a twist on post-apocalyptic stories and your typical mainstream superhero comics. And I, I think the thing about the End League that stood out to me is that, like a lot of the other works of his that I've read, Reminder uses the premise to explore the consequences of violence and the ramifications of what failure means for the survivors, because these heroes pretty much failed to save their world. And mm-hmm. now they've got to live in this world that, you know, just reminded of all the things that they've screwed up. And there's something quite fascinating about it. I, I think the series is a little bit undercooked. I I believe it was intended to be like an ongoing series of indeterminate or indefinite length but or at least that was what was implied in one of the early issues um in the editorial at the end of the issue but then i i was looking at like when the issues came out and like towards the end there it, it definitely had some massive delays uh, because it was only nine issues in i don't know like 20 months or something so it, it it didn't really come out on a very timely basis and it had multiple artists working throughout so i feel like i'm not really sure what the behind the scenes was but i feel like there's a chance uh either sales weren't that good or maybe he kind of lost interest in it because it was taking so long and he ended up just wrapping up the story real quick in a final issue but some of the art is really good because Eric Canetti draws maybe half of the series, and he's he's awesome. But the the other artists are 
pretty bland. You're, you know, your typical superhero comic book art. That's a shame. But, yeah, it's a, it's a shame. And I guess another thing about the series that kind of makes me think of some of his other work, especially since we're going to be talking about Deadly Class Volume 9 today, is that Remender definitely wasn't very precious with his characters in the end league. I think he just enjoyed creating these characters, building them up and, and like getting you trying to get you to invest in them. And then just having something happen to them just that ripping would ripping your heart out. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say yeah. it was like emotional to the point where I felt something necessarily, but it was more just, he's not afraid to kill the main character or something just because it's a main character, you know, like he's, he's willing yeah. to, to kill a character, not just for the shock value, but to show you the impact of it on the story. And I, I feel like that's something we experience here in Volume 9. It's almost an anti-Big 2 sort of attitude in the sense that so much of mainstream Big 2 comics is, revolves around the idea of giving you the sense that there are consequences but at the same yeah. time they bend over backwards to preserve the the ultimate status quo of it right whereas mm -hmm. like you said with Rick Remender he he writes to yeah he he writes to make you feel the impact of the consequences of these actions right mm -hmm. so you know what is the point if your main character isn't capable of dying in a story. Yeah. Like, what does that really teach you consequences other than, you know, uh, the things that happen to side characters here and there? Um, like, in the real world, consequences can happen to, any, to everyone and anyone. So, yeah. It, listening to you talk about the End League, though, it, it did make me think about Black Science and, you know, seeing as how we are in an era where multiverses are in vogue at the moment, uh, if, if you're into the idea of multiverses and alternate dimensions, uh, I think Black Science is a pretty good series for that because that's something that totally eats that premise up and just revels in it. But I would also say, on some level, he might even be taking the piss out of it in the sense that this was a series that was written a few years ago or completed a few years ago. And I think as I was reading it, it felt like it felt like if it had been if it had completed as a series, if it had started and completed as a series like this year or in the modern era, uh, you know, in 2023, it would almost feel like a response to the to the popularity of multiverses and alternate dimensions right now mm. um it would almost feel like it's him kind of showing you and saying you like multiverses i'm gonna multiverse the crap out of you <laughs> <laughs> you make it sound like such a threat uh yeah a little bit i could see it being it, it there's a way to read the comic where you take it straight on face value and you uh, take it straight and you go, okay, this is really 
them just really taking that idea of multiverses and just pushing it to the nth degree. But there's a level of absurdity and um, yeah, absurdity and just ridiculousness to it where after a while it just feels like it just feels like it is I, I wouldn't say he's like making fun of us as a reader, but he might be just making fun of the idea of yeah, of of multiverses as a whole, you know? Mm. Yeah. I see. I see. Yeah, but it's a great series. I, I do think it's a great series uh that lines up with what you were saying in terms of um Reminder's penchant to you know explore the consequences of actions um and just how those things can haunt you and affect you years down the line yeah especially if those actions include life-altering failure yeah (laughs) it does have a new series coming out that i do really want to check out it's uh called the sacrificers and it's him working with max fiamara fiamara and well i'm just a big fan of max fiamara fiamara and i'm also a fan of reminder so i'm i'm hoping to check that out when it comes out um i don't really know what it's about but i'm looking forward to it nonetheless yeah i think the first issue came out but i haven't been to a store and flipped through it or anything mm-hmm. oh yeah the other thing i was going to ask you albert since we had the bye week last week you were on your travels you want to give the good listeners an update on your journeys recently the various comic shops or other places that you visited while you were on the east coast yeah i i did the math and last week just due to all of the various layovers and um you know all of the adjustments that i had to make make i ended up visiting like seven states last week uh so i was i i was in new york and then i was in connecticut for a very brief moment then i went up to massachusetts and then i drove to vermont and while i was in vermont i spent some time in new hampshire as well and then um when i was flying back i ended up uh, i ended up in philadelphia for a little bit in pennsylvania yeah, in pennsylvania and then um i ended up in nevada uh in vegas for for mm-hmm. a little bit so i was just kind of all over the place and on the but, way over didn't you stop in florida or orlando or some somewhere oh yeah you're right i was in florida too so i might have gone to like eight states now that i think about <laughs> it yeah it's it, it was a lot it was a lot but um yeah it, when i had downtime especially you know in those instances where i i had like these exceptionally long layover layovers where you know um i i didn't i had a lot of time but i didn't have so much time to do um you know that much uh i took that as an opportunity to go explore the random comic book shops that was in the area so i have been posting that on instagram and you'll be able to see just my thoughts and my findings and it was a good opportunity to go and really see what other comic book stores are like in other states um 
yeah, I remember going into Orlando in Florida and I was thinking, well, I've got like a eight hour layover. I could, I could go to like Universal Studios or Disney World for like four or five hours, come back to the airport and then fly out. But then I thought about it and I was like, I don't want to spend 200 bucks to get in just to go and hang out for like four or five hours. And then Dang, I didn't know it was 200 leave. bucks. Yeah, it's expensive to go to Disneyland slash Disney World. It is not a cheap experience. And on top of that, like, you know, with all the rides and the amount of people in line for rides, even if I had gone, maybe I could have gone to on one, maybe two rides before I had to go back to the airport. So that just Wait, seemed kind of ridiculous. But then you had Pepper with you too, right? Can Pepper actually go on those rides? Probably not. Probably not like a roller coaster. Maybe I could do like a smaller ride or something like that. Like, you know, if I had gone to Disney World, I could do the Jungle Cruise or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think for a brief moment, I wanted to go to Universal Studios and check out the the Harry Potter world because that's something that I'm not a Harry Potter fan, but I, I have friends who enjoy that sort of thing. And you just wanted to make making... them feel jealous. Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm quite that petty. <laughs> or if I'm if I'm gonna be petty, it'll be in other ways. <laughs> but you know, I it, it's one of those things where I was like, well, I've never been to Disney World. I've never been to Universal Studios. Maybe it'd be worth it to go and check out. Um, you know the production value of the Harry Potter part of the universal theme park. But again, like I said, once I thought about it and I considered the fact that I only had about five, a window of five hours and it would cost me 200 extra bucks for that. I was like, it's cool. I'll just go to a comic book store and, or, you know, as many comic book stores as I can within that window and see what they have. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. yeah i posted all that up on our instagram so if you go check it out go to between the gutters uh on instagram you'll, you'll see the various pictures i have uh by, on various comic shops in the east coast i'll also be putting up a few more additional pic- pictures of uh pepper on vacation yeah we've mm-hmm. uh put those in the highlights under comic shops so check that out and you can see the different comic shops that you visited there Pretty cool. Was there anything nice. that you saw at a comic shop that made it feel like you were in a different state or are comic shops all over pretty much the same? Um, I mean, I'd say it was a pretty wide variety of stores to choose from. I certainly came across, I guess, if you really stop and think about it, if, if you think about the spectrum of comic book stores that you can come across, um, those kinds of shops definitely existed out there. Mm-hmm. So um, there was this one store, I, I forget my, the name of it. I'd have to look it up on the Instagram, but it's, I've posted it up there. And it was definitely, you know, just a shop where I, I'm trying to find a nice way to put it, but it just felt like it was just packed to the brim with just junk. And <laughs> when I went in there, there was there was an older gentleman in there who was 
I guess you could say he was a bit awkward. He was talking to me about how was he the owner? Oh, he was, I'm pretty sure he was the owner, but essentially he was saying, "Well, I don't really." Uh, in terms of people that come in here off the street on a daily basis, we don't really see too much of that anymore. And then he starts going on on how, you know, there aren't, you know, people are moving out of, you know, his area in Vermont and how there's like this drain and da 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 da. And then he starts talking about how, um, yeah, how, how primarily his business is all online now. And he was like pointing me to different areas where, he just had stacks and stacks of books, not, not stacks, like, uh, drawers, drawers filled with books. And he'd be like, well, these are discounted at 50% off or whatever. But when I went and like dug through them, well, one, they were kind of dusty. Everything was kind of dusty. And two, it was a bunch of the books were like, I'd be looking through it I'd pull something out that was kind of interesting. And then I'd say, Oh, how much is this? And then, He'd go over to his computer, look it up on like online to see what I guess the current value is and <laughs> or like what the popular value is. What and then he would give me like 50% off what that price was or whatever, you know. It was really uh, kind of annoying. <laughs> it was like I I don't really want to do business this way, you know? Yeah. Where like every time yeah. I want something, I, I gotta grab it, take it to you, and you're gonna, you know, see what the uh popular value for it is and then you know give me a number it's just like what was he checking keycollector.com or something probably if, if not that something like ebay maybe yeah yeah i remember and yeah he he was pleasant enough i guess but he was just awkward maybe that's remember, why he didn't see too many visitors coming off the street yeah but the thing was when i was there another guy did come in and he bought like some magic cards so it was like okay so it wasn't like i was the only person who had come to see this guy ever you know yeah yeah so i guess i didn't feel quite as weird uh about it and then at one point i did see that he had um these spider-man cards from when i was a kid mm-hmm. and i did have a bunch of those when i was a kid but i i don't know whatever happened to them like i think i might have given them away but i kind of regret that now yeah and i was looking at a box of them and i was like oh do you sell any packs of those right i was willing to like buy one pack just to see what i could get and he goes oh um i don't think we have any boxes oh i don't think we sell them in individual packs and the thing about that was I was looking at the boxes that he had on the shelf and one of them looked open. All he had to do was like walk over and check, but he didn't want to do that. I was just like, <laughs> okay, I'll just take your word for it. And then, <laughs> and then when he was looking at the box, he was like, I can check how much they are online and give you like, you know, I'll give you a number. Right. But he was, he was, and the guy liked to talk. He was just the kind of guy who was constantly just telling stories even though okay, okay. I didn't really have too much interest, but <laughs> <laughs> he was talking about these Spider-Man cards and he was like, yeah, these cards were doing really well during the pandemic. Like I was selling them for like $300 a box. And at that point I had checked out once he said $300, I 
I, I really checked out. I was just like, I'm not paying $300 for a box. One, I didn't even want a box of them. I just wanted a pack, but I'm definitely not going to pay $300 for a box, you know? Yeah. And even like, if okay. you were going to give you a prorated price for one pack from the box, I'm pretty sure that would have been too rich for your blood. Probably. It wouldn't have been I, worth it. If I would have been willing to spend like $5 on a pack of cards. Like, I don't think that that's excessive, but he probably would have charged you like 20 or 15 at least yeah exactly exactly if a box is 300 yeah how many packs are in a box probably not that many so yeah yeah but but that's the thing so again we're for a comic book podcast we want to see more comic book stores comic book stores are the light of civilization to us Mm -hmm. and this is a guy who who was pretty oblivious to that. He was just a dude who was like, yeah, it's not my business practices that was really ruining my store or like making it so that people aren't really incentivized to come see my shop. (laughs) In his mind, it was just, yeah, there's just, uh, you know, all a variety of reasons that people don't want to come here, but it's certainly not me and not how I conduct my business. (laughs) (laughs) He he did just seem like he was that oblivious. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. I can't really yeah. buy stuff from a store with if the things don't have price tags and the guy's just gonna check eBay or some other website yeah. every single time I want to buy something. No way. I did think, as I was talking to this dude, I did think to myself, Drew would probably hate this. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely would. <laughs> yeah, it just seemed like a like an old like an old junkie bookshop out of a movie where there really wasn't any organization things were just like packed to the brim everywhere it yeah it was not very well organized pretty messy like i said everything was dusty but you know for some people this might be the only comic book shop that they have in this area yeah yeah. And I do think that the nature of that kind of store does make it so that the potential of finding some kind of hidden treasure increases. It's just that the treasure won't be cheap. It won't be cheap, and you have to really work for it. Yeah. But yeah. if you're willing to do that, then you might actually be able to find something you want. Yeah. But fortunately, there were other comic book stores in Vermont. Um I mean, this one was, I forget where it was located, but once I went into Burlington, um, that was probably my favorite comic book store in the area. And that's only because it they had stock that was aimed towards me as that kind of a shopper, mm. which means they had discount comic books. So Very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who could... How could there be anything wrong with that, right? Mm-hmm. And, well, I guess the funny thing about this one was um, Earth Prime Comics is located in Burlington, Vermont. And I remember the night before, I was eating dinner in the small like town that I was staying at. And, <laughs> okay, a couple of things. Uh, so this might be a little longer, but uh there was this uh small inn there weren't like a lot of restaurants in the town that i was in but there was this like hotel slash inn and i came in there 
and uh yeah the the service people came to uh they, they let me sit down they invited me in they like brought me food and you know you kind of expect in a small town like this it'd be you you wouldn't necessarily expect them to have a lot of minorities you think it'd be a lot of just white people essentially mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but while i was sitting there the lady that um the hostess was an asian lady and she saw me and i i think it was one of those situations where she was just like not expecting to see another asian person so yeah so she like immediately was like engaged with me nice so she, <laughs> so she she was talking to me a little bit and then she goes um oh have you met this this lady over here and there was like another family eating dinner and I guess the mom in the family was another Asian lady. So, <laughs> so like this lady's way of connecting with me was to like introduce me to other Asian people. <laughs> and I was just like, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm capable of interacting with other people too. Right. <laughs> so you met this other family. <laughs> I didn't meet this other family. She was just, she, the lady, the hostess was just like, Oh, have you met this lady? Cause she's, she's, uh, I don't think she went so far as to say, "Oh, she's another Asian lady," but she was just like, "Oh, she's the she's the vet here in the in the town." And I looked over and I was like, "Oh, it's an Asian lady." And then <laughs> shortly after that, in my mind it registered, "Oh, she's only she's mentioning this to me because it's another Asian person." <laughs> you know. All the Asians got to uh, stick together, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> But then the thing was, so this this lady was talking with me a bit and she was asking like, oh, what have you done? Where have you been while you've been out here in Vermont? And I told her, well, tomorrow I'm going to drive out to Burlington. I'm just going to go and see what's out there. And I guess Burlington is one of their bigger towns or like a metropolitan area. And she goes, oh, you should be careful out there. There's a lot of homeless and there's a lot of like crazy people out there. And just as a knee-jerk reaction at that point, I just I just responded to the lady by saying, I essentially just went, I'm from San Francisco. It's fine. I'm pretty sure I can handle it. <laughs> uh, but then the lady like responded by saying, yeah, but they have guns out there. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I can't really argue with that. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I went to Burlington uh, the next day and it actually wasn't that bad. It, you know, there were, from at least what I saw in the area, there was like five homeless people. That's like nothing. <laughs> Do they have guns? I don't know. I didn't talk to them. I didn't like make it a point to survey them. So none of them try to <laughs> shoot you or rob you? Yeah. Yeah. They weren't just like walking around waving their pistols around like the Wild West or anything like that. Yeah, that's kind of what <laughs> I was picturing when she warned you. Kind of like uh, Yosemite Sam, you know, from... Yeah. Uh, we need to just fire just into the, the most air. cartoonish comical idea of what it's like to you know interact with people with guns <laughs> yeah exactly they just <laughs> they used it for everything they were like here let me uh let me open this soda and then just shoot off the lid with their pistol <laughs> <laughs> or like let me let me pick a song with off the jukebox like the fawns and then they just like shoot the jukebox and a song comes on <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but Did Earth Prime to... Comics. Oh, I was gonna Go ask you if you have to dodge all the human fecal matter on the ground like you do no, when you're at home. Certainly not. Certainly not. It, 
I mean, yeah, that that doesn't really compare. Um, you know, all in all, it was fine. It was a fine town. Um, I, I would say after you know being out in the more secluded parts of Vermont, I I, I kind of welcomed seeing a more metropolitan area. You know, just yeah. to get myself grounded again. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, the the store over there, Earth Prime Comics, was was a good shop. I was they were pretty friendly. Um, I looked around and then I noticed out of all the stores that I'd been to, I hadn't really seen that many discount. I hadn't seen any discount comics, but um, yeah, the, they, they had that box that I posted on Instagram where uh, if you buy five comics, you get them for 50 cents each. If you buy 10 comics, you get uh, an increased uh, discount. And then for every increment of five, you get more of a discount. So I was like, awesome. That's, that's a great deal. I'll, I'll go for it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I found a couple of things. I posted that on Instagram. You can see what we got. Um, there was a, one interesting story about that store though, where I was digging through comics and this guy came in and I'm going to be careful with my words here, but <laughs> I think he was someone who, who had, was probably on the spectrum a little bit. He was okay. a little awkward. He was kind of talkative and he just, he just kept going, you know, but was he talking to he you or to someone else? He wasn't talking to me. He was talking to the people that worked at the store. Okay. So he, you could tell he was just the kind of guy who, yeah, who was kind of awkward, who didn't necessarily, probably didn't have too many friends or anything like that. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Like, I, there was a part of me that felt a little bad for him. But to their credit, the people that worked at this store were pretty understanding of him and they would just allow him to kind of keep talking and this this guy was the kind of fan comic book fan who would you know tell you what he thinks about comics even if you didn't ask and just kind of keep going mm-hmm. you know what i'm talking about drew i know Are what you you're talking this? about i am <laughs> yeah yeah so he would talk about like what he read and what he thought and you know the people at the store they they were they were patient with him i certainly would not have had that level of patience. <laughs> um and at one point i forget what he was talking about but i just specifically remember him he- hearing him go yeah cuz i love it when geoff johns writes things he's my favorite writer <laughs> Uh, I was just like, oh, this poor man. <laughs> oh, man. How old was the dude? Uh, It wouldn't surprise me if he was like my age or maybe maybe a little younger. Okay. Okay. I mean, yeah. And And the thing about this guy was he bought his comics for the day at that point. And then... I guess he had like a bunch of stuff that he was coming to pick up, but he was like saying, Oh, um, I'm just going to get these for today and I'll come back tomorrow for the rest of the stuff. So he was a guy that from the sounds of it, it almost feels like he comes in really often, you know? Oh man. Those workers must deal with him all the time then. 
Yeah, I mean, but that's that's why I got the impression that this guy probably doesn't. I mean, I don't know what his social situation is like, but him going to the store, I'm pretty sure that's a big part of his social outlet. He's got nobody else to talk about comics with other than the people who work at the store where he buys his comics. What he really yeah. needs to do is start a podcast like us. <laughs> or or he could listen to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. He can talk to us while we while he listens to our podcast. It'll almost yeah. be like a simulated conversation. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. So that was more or less the entirety of my um, comics experience out in the East Coast. I used to be like that guy too, man. Before we started podcasting, I used to go to the store every day just so I could talk to somebody about the comics (laughs) that I was reading. Just so you could have some connection to the real world. And talk about comics. All right. Yep. Well, thanks for sharing, Albert. That sounds like a good trip, a productive trip. You visited many comic stores and bought a few things. Gained some culture and insight and met a couple Asian people. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> we got we got new relatives that's exclusively there now. What got, I do. got another auntie there. <laughs> it's exclusively what I do when I go anywhere in the world. Uh, the first thing I do is look for where the Asian people are. <laughs> I'm not comfortable unless I can find the other Asian people. <laughs> we we have like a built-in uh, GPS or or Bluetooth where we we shoot out a signal, hopefully attracting other Asians so that we yeah. can coalesce around once once an, uh, around one another. <laughs> That's great. Okay, shall we discuss Deadly Class Volume Nine? Let's get into it. I have my chapter breakdowns, and I can start with issue 40. How's that sound? Sounds good to me. Deadly Class, Volume 9, Issue 40, Bone Machine. Having only a moment to bask in their reunion, Maria and Saya are attacked by Kenji's goons. They succeed in killing their attackers when Master Lin enters. He claims that deception has taken place, and the price is Saya's life. Right. Maria tries to dissuade Master Lin by invoking the rule that students at King's Dominion can't kill each other, to which Mr. Lin, Master Lin replies that Saya is no student of his and therefore not granted that same protection. Maria, thinking on her feet, decides to sponsor Saya, bringing her back into the fold, leaving Master Lin seemingly pained by this act. Helmut proceeds with his plan to avenge Petra. He sneaks out of King's Dominion and attempts to ditch Tosawi, only to find him already waiting outside the school. Tosawi begs to come along, but Helmut is resolute. It isn't until Tosawi frames it as a bargain. Tosawi will help Helmut, and Helmut, in return, will help Tosawi get revenge on the men who killed his uncle and poisoned his reservation. Only then does Helmet agree. The two track down the last locations where Petra's father was known to have been, only to find a seemingly conventional church. The two infiltrate the service only to find themselves in the middle of a violent ritualistic orgy. 
They manage to kill several members before they escape. Tosawi begins to question what Helmet actually thinks he knows about Petra. And this only serves to enrage him, and he cuts ties with Tosawi, resolving to take revenge on his own. Unaware, Tosawi and Helmet's breakdown is observed by Petra's father, who swoops in when Helmet is alone, offering him a ride, and they drive off into the distance. All right. Yeah, this issue, I felt like it was it a good fast. opening. Yeah, it was a good opening to a story arc. It feels like things were just being moved into place for some future payoffs. Yeah, like thinking about it, it kind of felt like there weren't that many really impactful storytelling moments or or character development moments. It was more just this is happening here with Maria and Saya and Master Lin, and then this is happening here with Tosawi and Helmut, and then, you know, you got to just keep on reading to see how that all plays out. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing that's interesting, and this is something that I can only comment on because we've read the volume, and so everything that happens in this issue is now painted in the context of everything that will come at least for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've, we've discussed Helmet in the past as someone that, I don't know about you, but at least for me, of the new students, he was someone that I genuinely liked. Maybe one of my favorite of the new kids, right? Yeah. And yeah. when Petra dies uh, in the previous volumes, that's something that seriously affects him. And as a fan of him, him as a character, you kind of hope that he's able to succeed somehow, some way, and that he's able to find maybe some sort of peace from the situation. But in this moment, I think we're still on board with him because what he's doing is noble, essentially, right? Because he looks at Petra's he's situation for revenge. and he wants to get revenge for her. He wants to get all the people that ultimately led to her death. Uh, is violent revenge a life. noble goal? I think it can be. Uh, I mean, I think especially to Americans, violent revenge is <laughs> one of the noblest things that you can <laughs> you can have in the American uh, mythos, right? But like, Helmut is German, isn't he? Yeah, but this is this is something that transcends that. It's it's mm-hmm, it's a mm-hmm. it's a American I don't know trope, I guess. Even if he is German, it's, mm-hmm. it's something that can appeal to the American sensibility of what's more noble than the revenge story or getting revenge against those that wronged you mm-hmm. or in the name of your loved ones. Right. 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 Yeah. So I don't know. Um, I guess I have one question. I don't know if mm-hmm. it's in this issue or if it's a, in a later issue, but. At one point, when Helmut is listing out his grievances, you know, essentially his hit list of the people that he wants to go against, I feel like there's an implication that there's this, there's already this rift that exists between him and Marcus, but Mm -hmm. there's this insinuation, rather, that at some point, Helmet's path is going to have to come 
against it's go, eventually going to have to cross Marcus at some point, even though they were all, you know, involved in their situations together. Did you did you get that sense? It's not I don't think it's explicit in this issue, but I think mm-hmm. because of the interactions we've seen them have over the past several issues, there's definitely that lingering cold animosity that Helmut mm-hmm. holds for Marcus because he still thinks that Marcus's inaction is basically what allowed Petra to get killed or that he thinks Marcus didn't try hard enough to pr- protect Petra when he could have saved her. So mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. some way he's, you know, very distraught, understandably so, and maybe he's just looking for somebody that he can blame. And yeah, yeah. he already knows that he's got to get Brandy. He already knows that he's got to get Petra's father and the crazy death cult. Uh, I don't think he explicitly says, I'm looking over this conversation again. He has with Tasavi as, as they're on the car in the car driving, but um, he doesn't explicitly mention Marcus, but he does say at the end, uh, he says, after this, after I take care of all the other people who hurt her, Lynn's next. So presumably Marcus and Brandy would be included in that list of other people, but it shows that he's willing to go all the way to the top because he holds Master Lynn responsible for all this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if I had just read this issue alone and not the stuff that follows it, I don't think it would have been at the top of my mind to consider it's like you said, the animosity clearly exists between Helmet and Marcus, right? There's there's a resentment there. Mm-hmm. But I I didn't think that the natural conclusion or extension of that resentment was that he was ultimately going to take some form of he was going ultimately going to take it out on on Marcus somehow, right? And maybe that's coming from a person who hasn't experienced that type of anger before. <laughs> what so, you've never hated someone so hard that you wanted to cry, Albert? Uh, have I? I think I have a general uh uh a general overarching hatred of just humanity as a whole. But I don't think yeah, uh, it's different when you hate humanity as an abstract concept versus hating one specific individual yeah, person that you yeah. know personally in your life. That requires passion. It does, man. It does. Yeah. yeah. You're not depressed, are you? Are you okay, Albert? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to spread out my reserves of hate. <laughs> hate is a precious resource <laughs> to me. <laughs> you can't just expend it on anybody. <laughs> I can't. I can't. I would I would just die if I spent it all. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any thoughts about the whole situation with Petra's father and how he he kind of sneaks around this this issue and he's not really there until the very end and you just the very final panel is him driving up in his station wagon helmet gets in cuz he's hitchhiking and you know and this guy is just like where are you where are you heading? And Helmet goes, 
wherever the wind takes me. And he, he ends up, uh, Petra's dad goes, open-minded. I like that. And he just gives this really sinister grin before they just drive off into the distance. Yeah. yeah. Did you have any thoughts on just this, this introduction to Petra's father? I mean, we've seen him in flashbacks in previous volumes, but this is us meeting him for real, for real, for real. So here's the thing. Until you mentioned it, I actually didn't realize that was Petra's father because I forgot really? what he looked like. Yeah. It makes <laughs> sense, though. In my notes, I had just written, I had just written down the Some crazy guy. Cult guy, the crazy cult guy. <laughs> wow. Well, okay. To be fair, I don't know. I think I just assumed that that was Petra's dad. Okay. So okay. I'm taking so your word for it. I'm taking your word for it. Because, yeah, because it just sort of made sense in my mind. Because why would, I guess in my mind, I'm like, why would Rick Remender just introduce this random cult guy? Like, he would, he'd have to be tied into this thing somehow, right? So, yeah, it, it, to me, it makes sense that, that this guy is his dad, is, uh, is Petra's dad, especially the way that he's introduced as this dude who's sneaking around and watching all this information and getting all this it's like, cartoonish I've, because the first time we see him he's literally hiding behind a, a wall looking through the eyes of a painting <laughs> yeah it's like a scooby-doo episode right yeah so he's like peering through the through the eyes of this painting and he's over he's overhearing this conversation that helmet is having with tosawi and this is where he learns i believe that he learns of petra's death and I think that's why I that's another reason why I thought it was Petra's dad because he gets he gleans this information from overhearing these two talk. Um mm. and then after that he decides to use it for whatever his own personal sinister purposes are, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. It's something where I just didn't remember what her dad looked like because I've been reading the volumes digitally and I didn't feel like uh, re-renting or re-borrowing the other volume just to check the flashback scenes. But I'll take your word for it. It makes sense that that's her father. Well, the thing is, the way that I remember how her dad looks in the previous volumes is when they first present him in, in the volume where Petra's this little girl, this little kid, he looks like a pretty conventional dad, like right out of a Norman Rockwell painting or something, you know, a guy with a button up shirt, slacks and, you know, dad hair, essentially just kind of slick back or whatever. Right. And when we see him now, he, he just looks like a deranged hippie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's why in my notes, I just wrote down crazy cult guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have a question about what Tasawi has to say about Petra here. I thought this was kind of interesting. So after they fight fight off the cult, they drop a bookshelf on their secret entrance, trapping them all inside, right? Mm-hmm. And and Tasawi at this point is just kind of freaking out, and he says, um, you know, after he sees everything that they've done, he goes, "What was that?" And Helmet responds what Petra comes from. She deserves revenge, deserves someone strong enough to get it for her. She was better than the evil that wanted to take her. And and Tasawi's response to that is, 
she murdered that Billy kid, dude. Maybe it's time to see that. Maybe it's time to see she was hiding stuff from you. Maybe you don't know everything about her. Maybe you don't know her at all. Like, I don't know. I'm kind of curious about that because I don't know. Okay, let me put it this way. These kids go to a school where everybody essentially has some sort of messed up past, right? Mm-hmm. And for Tasawi to find her messed up past and to have his takeaway be, oh, maybe you don't know her at all. Like, you're, you're, you're taking it upon yourself to create this cause for her. But what if everything you believe you know about her is just wrong, right? Yeah, it and, feels kind of flimsy, a little bit hypocritical, and kind of weak-willed because of what you just on described. Part? On Tasawi's part or yeah, on Helmut's like, part? On, on Tasawi's part, because everybody's training in, in everybody at King's Dominion is in training to be some kind of killer or assassin. They all have a messed up mm-hmm. past. And then it's strange to me that... They come into contact having, with one of their actual pasts and just that one experience is enough for him to to shock him into this place where he goes what are we doing right yeah exactly (laughs) i thought that was kind of weird too yeah because they've already fought off tons of ninjas and things like that and and that didn't really scare him off to the point where he just wanted to walk away from it make him question these people that were supposedly his friends you're right. They fought off a bunch of these ninjas and he, he he didn't go he didn't have this crisis of faith where he goes, "What do we actually know about Saya?" Mm-hmm. Right? He didn't mm-hmm. go he didn't have that same experience, but he goes and he faces off against these cult members and it's so shocking to him that it makes him reevaluate his entire relationship with Petra and it makes him reevaluate Helmut's relationship with Petra. Yeah, I think it feels a little bit contrived to split the characters apart so Mm. it yeah i mean it maybe there is there could have been another way to to do that but i think the way that it just plays out in basically like half a page or maybe like one page and a couple panels it's it's almost like remender and craig were trying to just move the story along to get it so that Helmut would be isolated from the guy that was, you know, basically going to be his partner in all this. And yeah, I don't really know how else they could have come to some kind of disagreement. So I guess Mm -hmm. having this situation Mm -hmm. where Tasawi has this sudden crisis of faith in Petra's character, that could be the contrivance the story needs in order to, split them apart so that when Helmut yeah. reappears later on in the story, um, you know, there's a reason for that, that makes sense within the confines of the story. Yeah. I mean, I, I still have thoughts about what we, when we see Helmut later, but I'll save that for when we talk yeah, about yeah. that issue. Uh, well, here's the thing. It's probably, yeah, I think it, it really is just so that we can get to Savi away from Helmut and have him go back to the other kids. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I remember reading that and I think I was perplexed by it. So I thought I'd run it by you because I was like, oh, maybe Drew can find something in this moment that would illuminate it for me because 
I don't know if I saw what Tasawe saw in that moment. Yeah, it's if very I would have had the same sort of response, you know. Yeah, it's strange, and it it kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere because not only in this issue but in the previous issue or previous volume, I remember the scene when Tasawi and Helmut were in the cafeteria together, and they had like a nice bonding heart to heart conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then here in this one, Helmut's ready to ditch Tasawi, but Tasawi. You know, he's too clever for that. And he basically maneuvers his way into helping Helmut, even though Helmut wants to be alone. He Tosawi manages to finagle his way into making it seem like, oh, I'm not doing this just to do it. But after we do this, you're going to help me, too. So it's more of a, a you know, we're, we're helping each other out. It's not just me doing something for no good reason for you. And it kind of feels like someone who's that serious about going with Helmut to these lengths to track down the death cult probably would have expected Tasawi to be more prepared to for all the things that he would have seen. You know, I mean, yeah. OK, yeah. yeah, they were they were naked. They were having some weird orgy ritual thing and they yeah. were wearing the heads of dead animals goat and <laughs> yeah, goat heads and. And tying each other up and stabbing each other and and trying to kill them and everything and but honestly it feels like he's already seen stuff like that like yeah right was the like, why is this any different than any other messed up thing that he's already yeah. seen yeah <laughs> <laughs> for it to be for it to be the thing that makes him go okay that's it I'm done I'm out <laughs> I'm out I'm out guys. <laughs> Okay. Well, I'm glad that you had the same thoughts that I had on it. So yeah, <laughs> I needed to hear was, that. That jumped out to me for sure. For sure. Mm. There is one was moment it? on the last page of this that I did want to talk about because it, it was something that really jumped out at me when I was reading it. But on the last page of this issue, it's the page where Helmut is hitchhiking and you see him, it starts off with him standing by the edge of a road, probably some rest station or something, because you see like a McDonald's and some billboards in the background. He's sticking his thumb out like any old hitchhiker, and then you have the car, like an old station wagon, uh, drive up, uh, dri being driven by Petra's father, slash crazy cult guy, drives up and picks him up, and then asks Helmut where he's going, and he says... Uh, wherever the wind takes me and the guy's just like open-minded i like that and then they drive off but the, i guess the reason why this page jumps out at me is because of the artwork and the composition of it so recently i read a comic by peter milligan and mike diodato jr the comic was absolution and it's it's a great piece of work. I'm not going to get too into it, but I did post about it on our Instagram recently, and I heartily recommend it. I'm not specifically a Mike Diodato fan, but I feel like I've read a lot of his comics over the years just because he's been very prolific, especially with you know, Marvel and even DC when we were younger in the 90s. And the past few years, he's done quite a bit of these AWA comics. And Not All Robots, written by Mark Russell. Surprisingly, Mike Diodato drew that one. And that was a really good comic, a really great comic, won an Eisner Award. But I, I think because I've been reading some Mike Diodato, his art style 
um, the idiosyncrasies of his art style kind of jumped out at me. And I was looking at some of the things that Diodato likes to do in his art and kind of similar to what Wes Craig does. Both of them tend to eschew the panel borders. Like they don't draw set black lines around their panel borders. They tend to just uh, have the negative space, right? It's just the white gutters that split apart the panels. And another thing that they like to do is, or another thing that Diodato specifically loves doing is he, he'll draw a single image. Like it could be a, a big panel that takes up uh, a third of the page, for example, but he'll slice it up with gutters, even though everything that panel is, or in that picture is still expressing just one singular moment. Like there's no real reason for him to slice it up with the gutters, but I think it's just a stylistic thing he likes doing. I don't really get it. And I think after reading a lot of his comics, or at least reading Absolution a f couple weeks ago, it kind of jumped out at me like as an unnecessary habit because I didn't, it didn't, yeah, it didn't really add anything to the, the flow of the story. But when you look at how Wes Craig does it, and Wes Craig is like a way better artist than Mike Diodato, his understanding of storytelling is just sophisticated on a different level. And I'll, I'll point to this last page as a specific example, because when you look at uh, the last page, specifically uh, the top three rows of the page, the top three rows of panels, he kind of does something similar. Like in the first row, it, it's it's more of like a, a slow zooming out. So it's not necessarily, not exactly like one panel that could have been uh, divided up into three panels. It, it's actually like three distinct panels. But when you look at the panel, or when you look at the row below, the second row, it's the row where the car drives up to Helmut. And at a glance, it looks like it's one image that's just been split up by the gutters, right? But when you look at it closely, the first panel on the left, yeah. it's it's Helmut standing, and you see the front hood of the car pulling up to him, and there's a couple lines to indicate motion, you know, like it's it drove up and, and came to a halt in front of him. And then the middle panel is where the dude sticks his... Uh, He's looking at Helmut, and Helmut in this panel, he he actually walks over to the passenger side and looks in the window, and the the driver says to him, "Where are you headed?" And then in the third panel, you see these uh, motion lines and some and a cloud of dust being kicked up to indicate that this car is driving off. So th these are three distinct panels as well, and you can even see right. that the in the background there's a like a McDonald's sign or, or some kind of store sign that stays in the same spot, even though, um, you know, it, it's, it kind of looks like one image because of the way that the car is laid out, where if you had, if you just like mashed up the gutters and, you know, you could paste it together and put the, and make a picture of a car, but it's actually three distinct panels. It just kind of gives you the illusion of one a single panel. drawing. Yeah. Yeah. It's but a clever trick. It's it's a really clever trick. And just like the little lines in the, the dust indicate the motion of the car moving. Like that's just masterful stuff. And then even when you get to the third row, the, the row of panels right below it, 
that's one where it looks like it should totally be one image, right? Like those three panels where they're inside the car and Helmut is talking to him. Uh, it looks like if they just got rid of those gutters, that could have just been one panel. But I think by splitting that up, it actually does work because you have this sensation of of movement, like the car is moving while they're having this conversation, even though it's just a couple of words, they're still going somewhere. And and you get the indication of like a passage of time or just a flowing uh, movement as the car drives on. And it, it really works because Wes Craig doesn't abuse this technique willy-nilly. He's not constantly doing that. It's just when he does do it, it actually makes sense. And I think that's mm. a big difference between an artist like him and an artist like Mike Diodato, who kind of just does things because he thinks they look cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to dump on Mike Diodato or anything, but it's just like, yeah, I feel like yeah. Wes Craig is just on a different level. You know what I'm saying? You appreciate the uh, in- intentionality of why people do things exactly. outside of, you know, pure stylistic flourish, right? There's, exactly. There's got to be more to it than that. Yeah. And I would even say there's not necessarily anything wrong with Diodato's stylistic flourishes, but I think because he does it on like almost every page, it kind of becomes meaningless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of artists who tend to do things like that and they all kind of fall into the same category where it's just revealing of how little thought goes into what they're doing outside of man wouldn't that just look cool (laughs) you know yeah um guys that i can think of are yeah guys like t-mac or (laughs) the rob liefeld um yeah just we we've seen that sort of uh man i'm trying not to dump on people but there's no other way for me to put it like just that sort of shallow uh uh um comic booking before where it yeah we we just it doesn't really feel like there's any real substance to it other than oh man doesn't that look neat <laughs> yeah the more lines on yeah. this cape the radder it looks or the more yeah. muscles on this dude's six pack, the tougher yeah. he is. What but, if uh, yeah, I feel like the tape a lot goes of those... outside of the angles, outside of the panels here, just because. Yeah. Wouldn't that look cool? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm done talking about issue 40 if you are. All right. Issue 41. Let's go. Marcus reflects on a dream he has where he is old, but looking back on what being popular means to him, if it has any value at all in in the long run. He awakens to Maria sitting at the foot of his bed, warning him of some actions she's taken that may have some huge repercussions, alluding to her sponsorship of Saya. The next day, as class pictures are being taken, Marcus realizes what Maria was hinting at as she and Saya make their entrance. Master Lin makes it a point to let it be known that Saya has no standing and that she is a rat. Marcus is highly aware of the effects of the effects Saya's return may have on his potential plans. Marcus goes on with the rest of his school day playing the part of 
the popular kid, but deep down inside, he's thinking about how hollow it all seems. He's also thinking about Saya and his feelings of resentment and apprehension towards her return. As Maria goes out on the town, Marcus comes up with an excuse to not participate. While waiting at a coffee shop, Saya approaches him, confronting him about his decision to return to King's Dominion. He discloses that he has plans in the works, and although Saya tries to convince him to cut his losses, he's determined and makes it clear to her that this is the last time that the two of them can talk. Her status is a liability to him. At the club, Maria and Stefano have an evening out together with some hints of flirtation between them, between the two. Although they are both fully aware of the subtext of Master Lin's decision to make them roommates. Marcus meets some of the classmates at a fair, some of his classmates at a fair to complete an assignment. As they wander the fair, they have a sprawling conversation that drifts in and out of several different topics until they eventually discuss popularity, bullying, and the circumstances surrounding people's proximity to one another in, cho in changing social situations. Marcus makes the point that people enter and exit people's lives on the condition of who they are at a given point in time until they change. When Jayla asks if that was what happened with Willie, this question wounds Marcus. They conclude the conversation with the idea that the best way to live is by being true to oneself. Meanwhile, a sleazy politician is in the middle of an interview trying to turn attention away from his deplorable behavior. Jayla approaches him and the two walk off to have their own private conversation. Jayla reconnects with the rest of the group as they leave. We see people fleeing from the tunnel of love and we find the politician, the politician's murdered corpse on the ride. Yeah, I think uh, the opening of this issue starts off with this pretty fun montage of a moody Marcus walking through the city to the point where he's literally quoting Morrissey lyrics to himself as he's walking, you know, the Smiths. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very 80s, I guess. It, it definitely puts you in that kind of frame of mind. But there's, I don't know, there's just something about these angsty scenes that I kind of vibe with, just the way that the pages laid out you just see him walking through different parts of san francisco with the text on the right hand side of the page it's a nice opening page i enjoy it mm -hmm. i think the thing that caught me about this is well several things one is i think after everything we've established in the series up to this point about maria and marcus and you know, just their bond with one another. We've kind of gotten to the point where with everything that they've been through together, it it felt like for a while that, okay, this is them now. They've solidified their relationship. They're, I wouldn't say inseparable, but they're as good as they're going to get, right? They're, they're established. But mm -hmm. in this volume, it really feels like this is, the point where the rift begins to widen between the two of them. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the presumption is 
they had this relationship and then Marcus cheats on her and he learns the lesson, you know, the error of his ways and he goes out, he saves her from her cartel family and essentially tells her like, I was wrong. I want forgiveness. You're the, you're the only one for me, babe. Right. <laughs> they end up together. And that rolled off your that... tongue so easily. I wonder how many times you've actually said that to somebody. <laughs> uh, if I'm not lying to women at some point, then I'm I'm not living life right. <laughs> but but that's the thing, right? Like after everything they've been through up to this point, for them to get back to King's Dominion and still be a couple, um, it it almost feels like, yeah, like what what else? How else? What could come between them at this point? But this. In this volume, it really does feel like this is where we're seeing that rift happen. And a lot of that is due to, I guess, Marcus's own doing, just him being kind of angsty and Maria not being in the same headspace. They're, it's this realization that they've got these almost diametrically opposed personalities to one another, right? Because there are... I forget if it's this issue or one of the later issues, but at one point he's Marcus does observe Maria and he just sees her as someone who's not really concerning herself with these like bigger philosophical questions. If anything, she's just trying to be a normal, you know, as normal as you can be at a school for assassins, but a normal teenage girl who just is trying to have fun and here we're seeing Marcus, who is really, really researching or or being introspective about all these ideas. Um, yeah, you're. There, it's just kind of a fire hose of ideas in this in this particular issue um, mm-hmm. to the point where I find myself losing the thread sometimes. I, like I really had to read it a couple of times in order to parcel out. Um, some of the ideas that he was trying to talk about. And I, I think what I finally came to was, oh, he's, I guess he's just that angsty kid that looks at all this popularity and stuff and is like, what's the point of all of it? I don't know if you feel the same way or, or if that kind of occurred to you too. Um, I think I need to ask you a question before I can fully understand and come up with an answer, but can you explain to me what Marx's plan is right now in the story? Oh, I don't think they revealed that, or I don't think they have revealed that, because it's something that they've been teasing out for a while. Right. But I don't think they... I, I think that's part of the surprise for all of us as the reader. It's it's not something that they have disclosed to us, because I'm sure whatever it is, that when it does happen, it's going to be... You know, it's meant to, like, hit us in our emotional balls. Yeah. Because yeah. um, when I was reading this issue for the first time, so, like, I don't... I'll preface this by saying, now that we've finished the rest... We've already finished reading the rest of the trade. Um, I don't necessarily... I don't believe what I'm saying anymore. But as I was reading it for the first time, this specific issue, I was... There was a part of me that was wondering if... This whole rift between Marcus and Maria mm, mm, was supposed to be yeah. manufactured. Like I wasn't sure yeah. if they were just trying to 
uh, act the way that they were in order to give a certain impression to all the other kids at the school and the teachers and Master Lin and stuff. Like, I wasn't sure if this was part of the plan or not. That's what I was kind of unclear right, on. Right, and I right. think later on, because of what happens in the rest of this volume, I, mm -hmm. I think it's not really part of the plan. It's yeah, just, yeah. It's just two kids in a relationship who have really screwy communication because they're teenagers, they're immature, they're also like, or one of them is also drinking a whole lot and not in the right frame of mind, and they're mm -hmm. in a school for assassins, you know, all sorts of stuff that just kind of piles up and adds to the issues that they're facing. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think... I don't think I'd really considered it at first. And like you, it isn't until he says something in one of the later issues where I even, where it had even occurred to me that the perception of some sort of rift between the two of them was part of some sort of plan, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think I took it on face value initially where I was just like, especially these scenes where Marcus goes on these long, um, I guess, what's the term? Not not a well. He goes on these long rants or whatever, right? Where you're you're hearing his interior monologue and he's talking about all these ideas. Like I can only take it on face value that if this is really his internal monologue that we're hearing, then these are genuine concerns that he's having mm -hmm. about her. Like there's no one that he's saying that to in his own head that he would have to convince other than himself. Right. Right. We're, we're taking it on faith that he's a reliable narrator. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that, uh, the question of, Oh, is this all part of some deception or not at, at this point really was something that I had accounted for. Yeah. So I think, it's more reasonable to just take it as teenagers being immature and not mm -hmm. being able to communicate. They're supposed to be in this relationship. And on the surface, even when they're at school, sometimes they'll, you know, they'll have scenes together so that the other, or they'll have moments together so that the other kids will see that there's still a couple or whatever, like that one page where they're in the library and Marcus is, studying and then uh maria comes over and gives him a kiss on the cheek and then heads off uh for a party and, and whatnot like there's things like that where it seems like they're like obviously they're dealing with problems in their relationship or some kind of unspoken tension but that's the problem it's just unspoken like they're not communicating about it so even when they do see each other their interactions are fairly superficial and you know safe they don't have any moments of privacy where they can just talk in open and honest communication they're just kind of living out life as kind of carefree teenagers and then that's why you get these moody marcus montages where he just kind of reiterates in his mind that he hasn't been able to get along with Maria lately. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in fact, we even see that he's really cold to Saya when he finally does cross paths with her in the hallway. 
and he sees her find a dead rat in her locker, he doesn't really care or, or say anything. He just, you know, minds his own business and keeps it moving without so much yeah. as an acknowledgement to to her. And it isn't until he's chilling at the Lucky Penny and Saya f- finds him there that they finally do have a conversation. And And this was a scene in this issue that I thought was really well done because it feels like a dramatic conversation. It feels like a scene where there's a lot more that's being left unsaid. So as a reader, we have the luxury of, you know, rereading the scene and we can kind of like guess at the emotions or, you know, make make educated guesses or surmise what's what's being left unsaid you know we can read their facial expressions or body language and you just get the sense of how tired marcus is of it all how cold he is to her how uncomfortable the situation is and how much he kind of doesn't really want to be there but uh, yeah, despite the uncomfortable conversation, I, I do think it's a really well executed scene on the page of the comic book. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because the dialogue is pretty minimal. Like they don't really say that many words, but everything that they do say just says enough to give you a, a great sense of what's going on but there's like a rhythm to their conversation where they just say these really they just keep it really terse you know yeah when you read that yeah. dialogue out loud it it really stands out for being minimal hmm. and it's a big contrast to the later scene when marcus is with Jayla at the carnival or the fair. I don't I don't know what you call it. But I was thinking how how much this carnival scene he has it starts off with four of them. Like it's Jayla and, and Marcus and two other kids. But after a certain point, it kind of really feels like it's a conversation between Marcus and Jayla. They're they're talking even though they're doing these other activities where they're shooting water pistols at targets or trying to win teddy bears and just walking around uh, the fair, it's almost like this conversation could have taken place anywhere and it didn't really Mm -hmm. matter what they were doing, but they just happened to be at a carnival so that Wes Craig could draw something fun, (laughs) you know? I like that sort of... Yeah, piece though because it's it's, it's, it's kind of cinematic in in a sense where a lot of the times when you watch movies um the difference the difference between like a movie and a play a lot of the times is that with a play you you have the limitations of setting you can only do so much right but with a movie and in this case with a comic you're able to capture a real slice of life moment Mm -hmm. that 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 happens in the real world and this idea that these two characters can have a substantive conversation 
while they are in the middle of an activity. That's, I think that's a pretty clever and I guess classy way to like capture it, right? Yeah, exactly. This, this is very, you're right. This very easily could have just been a conversation that they could have had at a cafe or in the dorms or something. But I think maybe this might be a reach for me, but you know, a lot of the times when you're out in the world, your conversations with your friends can happen anywhere, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're not necessarily limited to, okay, we have to have a sit down, we have to reserve a room so that we can have an official conversation. It's <laughs> not that's not how like real life really works unless you're podcasting unless you're podcasting yeah yeah <laughs> it'd be pretty hard to record our podcast if we were hanging out at a carnival yeah well eh, i remember like a few years back they there was this show that uh was on this one of the streaming services called crackle which was a it was a show that was done by Jerry Seinfeld and it was called comedians in cars getting coffee. Okay. And what it, it, it was essentially a podcast was what it was, but it was Jerry Seinfeld would drive up, he would pick up, you know, another comedian and they would drive around until they get to a coffee shop and sit down and have coffee. Right. So mm-hmm. the camera would follow them from their drive to, to, to the point where they sit down and have the coffee but it would just be this meandering conversation that these two people have as they meet each other up for a cup of coffee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I, I think that's a, I, I don't think that it's necessarily impossible to do it as a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We would need somebody to hold the mics for us. and Exactly. We would need a crew of people. We couldn't we couldn't yeah. do it by ourselves. Certainly not. But yeah, back to you know my initial question about this. Like I really felt like one of the ideas that was coming up several times, uh, like once at the beginning of this issue where Marcus is talking about this dream that he's having about himself as an old man you know, and what it's like to, you know, listen to songs and remember what it was like when these songs were the biggest hits in the world. And to suddenly look back on that and see all this new music and then being in a place where, you know, the thing that you thought was the most important thing in the world is now suddenly not the most important thing in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And and then to connect that with the later conversation that he has with Jayla, like, like I said, their conversation when they're at the fair is like just this really sprawling, all-encompassing conversation. It really just feels like it meanders and it covers a bunch of different subjects. But I think what I got from it was, um, you know, towards the end, they have this one conversation where they talk about, you know, what's it mean to be popular and what's it mean to, you know. And, and Marcus says something to the effect of, well, you know, the people that are in your lives are only in your lives when you are who you are for that period of time. And, you know, essentially the moment where you've changed, these things make their exit from your life. 
you know it, it's really just this really um a very loose grasp on relationships and and it's, it's cynical it's almost it's cynical it's shallow it it really it really does place the idea of what's important uh, uh like it, it places the idea of what's i guess what you prioritize as just this shifting constantly moving thing because it's it's only important to you because this is who you are at any given time right mm. so i don't know like I, I i really read this issue and it was a lot of work for me to try to really figure out what it was they were saying um but i think what i ultimately came to was just the idea yeah just going back to the idea of just like the idea of what popularity is and why is it important for him right now to kind of deconstruct that as as a teenager in high school i don't know if you got that same sense that that's why i put it out there because i'm just not that smart <laughs> mm, i think what i got out of marcus's conversation with jayla is they were talking about reputations and expectations uh, mm. that come with those reputations and how there's a power to that. But they were discussing it from a rather cynical point of view. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I guess like the other friends that are with them have some comments too. Um, and in fact, uh, one of them, actually, it might even be Jayla who who quotes Kurt Vonnegut. But Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, Vonnegut. Uh, she says, "Be careful who you pretend to be. In the end, that's who you are." Yeah. And that that's something that kind of sums up the characters in Deadly Class to a T, right? It's like everybody mm. in high school is trying to act like somebody that maybe they're not really that person, you know? Like everybody. Like when you think about how a regular high school is like, there's always people who are trying to act a certain way because they want people to think that they are that way. Somebody tries to act tough because he wants people to think that he's a thug or something. He's a tough guy. Yeah. A tough guy. There's someone who tries to act really smooth because he thinks he's a ladies' man, but you know he's not really. You know, you get all sorts of different characters in high schools, in real high schools, where people try to act a certain way because they want people, they want other people to perceive them to be the way yeah. that, you know, ideally, you know, it's like, I want I want people to respect me, so I'm going to act yeah. cool, I'm going to dress a certain way and, you know, walk a certain way so that people will think I'm cool or that people right. will think I'm a ladies' man or whatever the case may be. And, you know, it's really silly i think any uh adult will look back and just think about how s silly and useless that was but it's just the cycle of life i guess when you're a kid <laughs> that's just how we are yeah we want people to, to think of us a certain way and in this comic in deadly class where everything is a more extreme version of real life 
pretending to be somebody else in deadly class in the world of king's dominion it has life a, and death consequences exactly that's exactly what right. i was about to say yep. yeah no but that's that's the thing right like i think it perfectly captures the idea of what it means to be in high school while you're still shaping your entire sense of self and identity and while you're in high school you know you're not mature enough to really understand what it means to be yourself mm-hmm. because you don't know what that is so your idea of self is just a collection of images and uh concepts that you've collected from tv or movies or like people around you from your environment right mm-hmm. and it's just you pretending to be this thing and then ultimately it's not until you've you know wisened up and grown and matured all these years later where you come to the conclusion that oh man maybe i should just be okay with just being myself and not really can considering um who who do i have to impress you know mhm mhm yeah and and that it really just goes back to the idea of like popularity that that i i i was i felt like i was seeing again and again while i was reading this um i i i was looking for this one panel and i think this is it but it's it's the end note of their conversation uh as they're walking and yeah at this point it's just marcus and jayla and she says he says uh we absorbed the brunt of their cynicism right we changed we changed into them to become cool the only surefire way to go cold turkey is a huge cliche but be yourself do what you want speak your true mind and never allow current fashion to dictate what you think what you wear what you listen to who you are or how you treat yourself and that's that's the very end of that conversation mm-hmm. and i was just really trying to make sense of all of that i mean i think of all the things that they were firehose blasting us with in turn in their conversation that was the part that i was able to latch onto and make sense of and you know just kind of going backwards and reverse engineering that logic or or the conversation from that pit of logic what i got from it was that oh okay i think this ultimately is just marcus trying to deconstruct what it means to be popular and why he does what he does yeah and i think it's also something that is revealing for jayla as well because she's still a relatively new character for us but seeing her say these things have this conversation with marcus gives us a bit of insight into her and i think when we see what happens a couple issues from now it it's the kind of thing that will reverberate and help explain why she is the way she is and why she does what she does mm. Well, I look forward to hearing your take on that when we finally get to it. <laughs> yeah. I also wanted to right. talk about oh. um the art in this issue too because I feel like 
this issue was dominated by these conversations because we mentioned that first conversation at Lucky Penny where Marcus and Saya meet. And when you look at that uh, that whole scene, the coloring in this one, Jordan Boyd's coloring, he uses these really muted colors to light the scene. And the, the scene is dominated by these kinds of uh, like purplish hues and not, it's like kind of like this pastel or pale lighting scheme, right? Like the walls and of the inside of the restaurant and everything. It's, it's like not quite white, not quite greenish, but like something, something like that, something pale. And then when you, when you get out of that scene and, and you go to the next scene with, Maria and Stefano at the at the nightclub that one is lit with the well the whole scene is it's it's got this bluish tone to it like a very strong blue and when we finally get to the carnival scene we get more oranges and and yellows and greens and it's just a lot warmer and brighter and I, I'm not sure if it was intentional, but to me, it kind of conveys like the the way that the color affects the mood of the of the story. It's like almost like the scene with Marcus and Saya is, is so cold, which fits the point where their relationship is at, because he's kind of turning his back on her. He he um, really doesn't want to be around her much anymore. And then, uh, like that that scene with Maria and Stefano, there's blues and, and oranges in there. And, you know, you, you get the sense that they're warming up to each other, but they're not quite there yet. And when you read their dialogue, it's pretty obvious where things are headed between them. Yeah. And then yeah. the carnival scene, where it's got, like, all of these warm colors you really see that Marcus is gravitating towards Jayla and it kind of fits too, because like their conversation has so many more words than his conversation with Saya. It's the, it's a big contrast. And I don't really know if that was intentional in how they structured the, the issue, but, or if it was just a coincidence, but to me that that's pretty fascinating. Like I, whether or not it's intentionally constructed that way, I find the contrast between those two conversations, especially between Marcus and Saya and Marcus and Jayla at the carnival. Like there's something about both of those scenes where it's almost like night and day, even though I'm pretty sure both of them take place at night. <laughs> Did you, were you taken by surprise when they just all of a sudden introduced this like, sleazy politician doing an interview i was wondering like who this dude was like if we had heard of him yeah. before but then when i saw the ending i was like oh okay it, he was just here so he could die <laughs> yeah he was he was the project that they were working on where it was yeah. like okay because it just felt pretty random like you you're watching this conversation and then it just shifts to this you know this guy with this i don't really know how else to describe it but a shit-eating grin and he's just, you know, hamming it up for the camera. He's talking about how 
there have been all these allegations of harassment and abuse with him. And he's just like, you know, he's just doing that standard stereotypical politician thing of like deflecting the, the topic to try to, you know, make himself look good and make it seem like, oh, all this stuff that you guys are focused on is, it's all just kind of the fabrication um, gossip. Yeah. 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 And, and he's just super sleazy about it. Cause he even, puts his arm around the lady reporter and, and like brings her in close to him. It's just, man, he's yeah. a piece of work. The way that they draw him, the way that Wes Craig draws him, like he, it's, it's pretty exaggerated, like how greasy he looks and how like <laughs> big his smile is. Just everything about him is just, it, it, you just feel like you're going to catch an STD just by like breathing the same air that he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to he's describe gross. him. <laughs> yeah yeah he's gross yeah you ready to move on to issue 42 i am ready all right issue 42 we open on marcus clutching himself in agony as he takes a violent dump we learn that in recent times marcus has been living a life of sobriety but this has been a point of contention between him and maria who is just trying to have some fun as Marcus becomes more distant, he becomes closer to Jayla and Stefan. As Stefan leaves Shabnam's group behind, he reveals to Grogda that Shabnam has been gallivanting with Brandy. That's my nice way of putting it. <laughs> this news fractures their group even further. Maria, Marcus, and a lot of other students get invited to Stefano's Tapu Cabin for a getaway. Marcus is absolutely dour the whole time, while Maria is annoyed by his attitude, further widening the rift between the two of them. The party itself is quite active as all the partygoers interact with one another. Jayla makes acquaintance with Saya. Stefan and Victor argue about homosexual homosexuality, and Grogda is just viciously abusive to Shabnam. Maria tries to get Marcus to drink, but he refuses. Stefano comes in on Maria's side and tries to get Marcus to lighten up. But when Marcus refuses, Stefano gets him a sparkling water. It is at this moment where we snap back to Marcus on the toilet. And Marcus realizing that Stefano spiked his drink so that he could sneak off with Maria. Angered, Marcus goes off to hook up with Jayla, only to find her in the throes of passion with Saya. As Marcus backs out of, of there, he enters another room only to find Stefan getting orally pleasured by Victor. Marcus goes off to process everything he just witnessed before he takes it out on the radio playing Fleetwood Mac. Maria and Stefano go off to get drugs. When the dealer gets handsy with Maria, Stefano caps him and the two embrace as Brandy watches them, Shabnam and Grogda sit outside describing strategy, but her resentment towards him causes her to explode and berate him. And in a fit of rage, Shabnam buries an axe in her head before he goes back to roasting his marshmallows. First yeah. of all, I got to ask, yeah. man, does Rick Remender hate on Fleetwood Mac? Uh, I mean, 
if I don't really have anything else to go on, I'd probably say, yeah. But then I guess you could also look at it as what would 80s kids, you know, what would they be bragging on if if they were going to hate something? That's true. I guess Fleetwood Mac. I guess that makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. That's probably the music of the people who are a little older than them. So I yeah. guess that's, yeah, that's true. That's kind of makes me wonder if Rick Remender grew up hating Fleetwood Mac because of that. <laughs> <laughs> it could also just be one of those things where at the time, yeah, it's it's when you find out that that's what your parents listen to, you know, when you're a little, little kid, there's a point in time where your music taste and the taste of your parents coincide, right? Because they're your parents and that's the only music that you listen to. But as you get older and you develop your own taste, there's naturally going to be a, what's called, a, a there's naturally going to be this uh, separation between those two things as you're trying to figure out what you're into and you know in in the most extreme cases there are people who just utterly reject that stuff because old man remember is listening to this well <laughs> i'm a hip young kid so i'm all about <laughs> 80s music or whatever <laughs> hey i mean this volume is named after a pixie song what was it bone machine yeah Okay. That's a just, song from their first album. I just I just thought it just made me think of Wieners and Boners. I was like <laughs> I didn't even know it was a song. I was just like, well, what is oh, a bone man, machine? That's hilarious. But, like I just imagined a machine that just made erections. I don't know. When I don't have a lot of information, I have no choice but to just fill in the gaps. It's really just how my mind works. I guess I guess the logical thing would be to look it up and try to understand it, but I'm also lazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bone Machine, the song by Pixies, has a line, a repeated line that goes, you're so pretty when you're unfaithful to me. Mm. I feel like that's pretty fitting for this volume don't know if that's exactly why they picked that name to title the the book but thought it was interesting i guess there's a lot of i guess you could call it relationship stuff that happens i mean the the big obvious one is you know this is a pretty big split or moment between maria and marcus as you know by the end of it she's with another dude but you know, the whole time through, you you're watching Jayla and Saya get together, and in their own way, you're watching Stefan and Victor hook yeah. up, which I wasn't necessarily expecting. But okay, I definitely sure. was not expecting that. Yeah, kind of feels like that I mean, was there for comedy, honestly. Yeah, but I think if you look back. There, there might be a way to, to, to look through the evidence of everything we've known about Victor and say that 
maybe it's an indication that he's changing. He's turning over a new leaf after all the events of the past couple of volumes. There's that, but there's also the idea that he might have always been kind of secretly <laughs> the way he was. <laughs> right. Because there was that one story um, where Petro was talking about how one time she tried to get with Victor because oh, yeah. you know, he's just kind of, he's, you know, a conventionally good-looking stud, right? He's a he's big, a muscly dude. He's a jock. So she tried to get that to happen, and he just wasn't able to make that happen. Like, in retrospect, it's like, oh, maybe that's what it is. That's true. That's a good point, man. That's a good point. You you have yeah. a good memory there. Yeah, I try. I mean, if we're going to spend time reading these things, then I got to try to remember what I can. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, meanwhile, meanwhile, I couldn't remember what Petra's dad looked like, even though he, I think the flashback was in the last issue or in the last volume, <laughs> <laughs> like a month ago. Yeah. But then, you know, the other big relationship, you know, if you want to call it that, uh, well, no, it, it is a relationship thing that happens is Shabnam just loses it and just yeah. straight up murks Grogda. Like, they've already been on a pretty rocky path and you know to be generous to call it that but mm -hmm. they've had uh a lot of animosity he's he's just been kind of suppressing a lot of rage and i feel like this is the moment where this is the first time that he's killed someone and it just happens to be her and this is him uh, shabnam being someone who we've seen in previous volumes having a pretty loose grip on his emotional state so this is yeah this is kind of a big moment this is the moment where he kind of loses it and i don't know what he looks like after this you know mm. this is uh this is gonna sound pretty random but the scene when Grogda and Shabnam have their spat there's that panel at the bottom of the of the one page right before he kills her but she says but I'm done with that you fat stupid turd and then the last panel is a close up of Shabnam's face and it's got uh Grogda off panel yelling I'm done with you but the the face uh shabnam's face it's it's um there's something overlaid over it like just like these lines that are overlaid over his face to indicate like this crazy rage is about to explode mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um on the in the digital version it's on page 72 but for some reason when i saw that panel and i saw those lines across his face like those th that red line the way that it's designed I don't know why. It just made me think of Charlie Brown's shirt. It's the squiggle. Yeah. <laughs> it made me think of Charlie Brown, which is a weird thing to think about in a moment like this. Um, I will say this. Uh, if we go back one page to page 71, there is something that I'm noticing in this volume, and it might be something we might see a little more of. Uh, mm -hmm. Like I'd have to go back to previous volumes to see if this is something that 
Rick Remender does often, but I do feel like in this volume, especially, there's in Deadly Class, we've seen him introduce a lot of characters, and a lot of characters do seem to have an air of mystery around them. We don't really get too much of the background story. And it's interesting here that we finally learn something about Grogda, where she talks about her mom and you know what her home life is like a little bit. And just as we learn that, Shabnam loses it and he kills her, right? Yeah. Yeah. But without revealing too much, that isn't the only time that this happens in this volume. You know, it's it's kind of um, setting up, setting it up for maximum pathos is just, I'm just, it, it feels like it's him giving you just enough before he finally just gets rid of the character right like mm -hmm. okay if this is gonna be the last time we see them then i'm just gonna give you like just enough about this character so they're not just this one-dimensional villain in their final moments before their death you know yeah but she's still dead so it's like <laughs> her story kind of it's kind of pointless now, right? Like, there's nothing... doesn't really feel like there's much to be gained by exploring her backstory at this point. Yeah, yeah. But still, it... It makes it just makes the world feel more alive, though. Like, it makes the characters exactly, feel exactly. more fleshed out. Yeah. I really did like the ending scene in this issue, though. When Shabnam loses his cool... He just gets enraged, and that's just a really powerful panel when he takes that axe and just buries it in her head. <laughs> it's like, yeah, man, like it's not very gratuitous, but I feel like the restraint of it is what sells it. And then the reaction shot right after when you see her face and her gurgling, and then just how she falls right into the fire pit. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, but then like what makes it even crazier is like the sequence of panels right after she falls into the pit on page 73 in the digital version. Again, it's one of those sequences where it could have been like one long uh, horizontal panel, right? But then Wes Craig slices it up with the gutters, so it's like three separate panels. But really, it's like one image. But you have uh, Shabnam on the left uh, panel, and he's kind of, at, in the panel, it, it kind of looks like he's almost in disbelief of what he's just done. Like, he, he can't believe it, but he feels like he just can't stop looking at, at her body. And then the middle panel is just the flames. And then on the right side of the panel, uh, of the row, we see Brandy has returned, but it it's a good way to just indicate like some indeterminate time has passed where mm. you don't necessarily know how long it's been uh, before Brandy comes up on them. And then when she finally sees the outcome, <laughs> the dialogue is so good. Yeah. Yeah. She's just like, what happened? And then 
Shabnam says, well... And then you get these beats where a silent panel uh, side shot of his face and you see you see him start to cry like a tear comes out of his eye and then you get this one rectangle uh horizontal panel from his point of view where it's just her gragda's body burning in the fire <laughs> yeah he sits back down and he continues roasting his marshmallows and he says i guess we broke up <laughs> and she's just <laughs> he's just roasting it over her burning body <laughs> man there there was just something hilarious about that i i can't i can't for, deny that's not funny for for them to do just a memorable death and breakup you know if you really want to call it a breakup that's that's a hell of a way to do it yeah you know that's such a good scene there's it's all such these a good one-liner there's so many different ways that people can write other characters dying or leaving a series and that's memorable it, it just shows that reminder's got he's got the touch man yeah exactly mm-hmm. just like optimus prime he's got the touch he's got the power he's got the power <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's an 80s song go- we haven't seen referenced in deadly class so far <laughs> i also wanted to talk about the panel where Shabnam buries the axe in her head. Mm-hmm. Like in the following panel, you just see a close up of her face and she's just got this, this, I don't know, like her teeth are just clenched and she just goes, Gwark! <laughs> <laughs> like staring at him, blood's running down her face, her teeth are just clenched. And, you know, because she was like, previously just in the middle of berating and beating him with her marshmallow stick just you know mad at just what a worthless you know loser he is he buries the axe in her head and you know her final words are just guark <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty undignified yeah 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 but i guess she got what she deserved yeah she's not a character you- that's that's the sign of a good villain. You you want to see him go. <laughs> yeah, you enjoy seeing him go. Yeah, exactly. It's such a memorable death. I mean, he's she's just burning up in the fire, and he continues roasting his marshmallows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that's did gonna you, linger with me. Did you expect uh, Jayla and Saya to hook up? Was that something that you foresaw, or was that a surprise to you? That was definitely a surprise. Steven and Victor was definitely a surprise. Mm-hmm. Seeing, I mean, even seeing Shabdam kill Troll was a surprise. I was not expecting that to happen at all. That's true. That's true. And there's, you know, just just to say it now without spoiling it, there is another death later that took me by surprise. There's a couple deaths. But, yeah, there's a couple of deaths. Yeah, it's just one of those things where if we go back to what we were saying earlier about Rick Remender, uh, I guess it's the it's the sort of thing that he can get away with as a storyteller when he's not working for Marvel or DC is that he doesn't have to treat his characters as if they're 
precious, like you were saying, right? Mm-hmm. So um, he he understands that they are players in the story, and he, as players and as moving parts within the story, if they're gonna go, their deaths have to have some sort of impact. Their deaths have to matter. So okay, mm-hmm. I get that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just another comment, but, you know, right at that beginning, just watching, seeing that opening page of Marcus just cringing as he's like, you know, struggling over a toilet. That's just another sign of just um, Rick Remender's love of toilet humor. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's such a good drawing by Wes Craig. It really is. Like, you really feel Marcus's just pain. You can imagine his legs just shaking as as his body is violently trying to expel whatever messed him up. (laughs) And And then the the lettering, dude, it's like coming out of his butt, just exclamation points, man. (laughs) That that is funny. Yeah. That's Russ Wooten right there, man. The very first opening line of the issue is white knuckling the handicap rails <laughs> uh that was funny <laughs> yeah such yeah. a great scene good stuff oh yeah i was also gonna right. mention um right after that toilet page there's a scene where he kind of reminisces again gets into his like moody phase and he starts uh, thinking about how he went to watch Blue Velvet, the movie Blue Velvet with Jayla. And I feel like there's some commentary there as he discusses his thoughts on the movie. It's it's interesting to me. Uh, I'll just read what he, uh, what he says in his narration here. He says, Can't remember the last time a movie made me so happy. A wholly inventive look at the writhing monster living under the manicured veneer of the American suburb. I loved Eraserhead, but this, this was something else. Blue Velvet is the best movie I've ever seen in my life. In a culture full of dumb motherfuckers who see good character development as filler, who equate action to entertainment, David Lynch's focus on character and atmosphere and inventive dialogue, he's my new spirit animal. Mm-hmm. I feel like that comment that about, resonates. <laughs> yeah, it it does, man. It's like just another offhand comment here, but it it feels like he's des- it feels like Marcus. It feels like Remender is describing a lot of the worst the kinds of fanboys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> the people that we have to share a fandom with. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Because it, uh, it, it applies not just to movies, but to any kind of storytelling, I think. Because there's yeah people who... To anything you love, really. Exactly. It can apply yeah. to music. It can apply to uh, movies. It can apply to comics. Like, for everything that's good and decent and pure in the world, there's something awful out there that's beloved by millions for the worst possible reason. Yeah. <laughs> For the most mediocre, middling, uh, <laughs> meaningless kind of reasons. Uh, people. Yeah. 
It's those people who who see good character development as filler who equate action to entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. We spend so much of our time talking about the subtext of things, things that I guess to a lot of people would just be meaningless chatter or, you know, a wasted scene. Like we were just talking about this with Ashoka the other day where you sent me some review that someone had put up where, you know, the character was gazing off into the distance, contemplating the, the <laughs> consequences of her actions. And the guy was just like, why did they show us this? It was just a waste of a scene. Yeah. <laughs> she, they could have taken that scene and she could have killed two, three more stormtroopers. <laughs> <laughs> Because of that, because of her thinking, we don't get a scene where she gets to use a lightsaber. It's too many scenes of people staring off into the distance or standing at the edge of a cliff contemplating, what are they doing? This isn't a, <laughs> this isn't Star Wars. <laughs> this isn't This isn't a staring off into the distance party. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Idiots. Uh. You ready for issue 43? Bring it on. As Marcus steps outside to clear his head, he sees Shabnam and Brandy hovering over Grogda's burning body. Brandy points Marcus over to where Maria was last seen, and Marcus goes over, only to find her only to find Maria having sex with Stefano. Marcus runs off as Maria tries to stop him. As Mar- Marcus runs into a clearing, he is confronted by Helmet, who wants to take his life. As Maria and Stefano get dressed, they are surrounded by cultists. And as Maria prepares to go back to back with Stefano, <laughs> he runs off like a coward. Shabnam, still roasting marshmallows, links up with Petra's father, who gets Shabnam to point out who should live and who should die. The cabin comes under attack from the cultists. The kids are able to rebuff the initial attackers. Saya proceeds to make a run for it when the younger uh, freshmen plead with her to protect them, but she refuses while Victor steps up. The door explodes with fire. Outside, we learn that it was Shabnam who reached out to the cult and led them to their cabin. Yeah, it's a pretty... It's it's a pretty high action issue. There there isn't really a lot of talk. It's just the revelation. Uh, you know, it's the moment that Marcus realizes that Maria is cheating on him, or yeah. or he he walks into them. Uh, you know, doing it in the woods, and yeah. he just experiences such a massive emotional turmoil that he just throws up on the spot, um, and then. When he runs away, you know, to, to to process all this, he runs into a clearing only to run into Helmet, who's now apparently part of the cult and ready to, yeah. to mess him up. I I don't know. How'd you feel about that? Were you expecting that? I definitely wasn't expecting it. And I think after reading it and reading the rest of this volume, it's... It's something that feels a little bit unsatisfying to me, if I'm being perfectly yeah. honest. Because yeah. 
we see Helmut at the end of issue 40 get in the car with Petra's father, the crazy cult guy, and they head out. And then the next time we see him, he's one of them now. You know, he's dressed up as another crazy cultist, and he's just leading these other cultists to kill all these other kids. And I feel it like... It feels like it happens a little too fast, and it's a little too random. <laughs> yeah, especially because they give us the dates in the story. So it, it, it's, it really has only been a matter of a couple weeks. So for him to just suddenly become a death cultist, it's weird yeah. to me. Yeah. Like it's unexpected because say what you will about brainwashing and whatnot. Like I'm yeah. sure the indoctrination is pretty intense, but for the sake of the story, it still feels like there was a little bit too much left unpresented to us. Like it almost feels like we needed to see a little bit of something to show us how this could have happened to Helmut and why he would have. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I think there are a couple of things, especially if you're considering what I had said last time, which was, oh, the last thing we see is Helmut driving off with Petra's dad, right? Uh, yeah. Once once we establish that, there's so many different routes that that story can take and they don't really give us any indicator because the next thing we see is this this is the next time we see helmet right but mm -hmm. i i'm i'm open to the idea I, I i don't think i'm absolutely against the idea of helmet being swayed into the cult because if if you accept that he's this guy who is just so into petra who was emotionally damaged by it and just looking to take it out on the world. And if you can buy the idea that Petra's dad is, well, one, he's a cult leader and he's a guy who's just got a natural gift for persuasion. You put those ingredients together. Okay. I can see a story where he convinces Helmet that the person that had wronged him all along was always Marcus. Like this is the guy that he needs to direct his his angst towards, right? But like you, I think the thing that's missing is this all happens in the same volume. And maybe if this had been the next volume, if there had been like an issue or something where we see we see that process take place where Helmet is talking to Petra's dad and mm -hmm. we can see him being this manipulative creature and just how he is able to warp Helmet's mind and bring him around to realizing that this is the course of action he needs to take in order to satisfy himself, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's such... It, because without that issue, without that scene between those two it just it's a complete 180 for helmet this character that like i said earlier is someone that was someone i had a lot of love for when they introduced him and like as as we grew with him and as uh we saw more of him within the series and all of a sudden to have this like quick rug pull i mean i get it it's comics but 
yeah, it's uh, it feels kind of random. He turned heel very easily or very quickly. I think that's probably the my biggest problem with it though is because we don't really see how it happened at all. Like there's no hint or indication of it. It's just we have to accept it, and that's that. And I, it doesn't really feel like we're gonna. Well, I don't know. Maybe we'll get answers in the next volume. I, I don't really know. Yeah. But there are several times in this series where we think that there's definitive endings for people, only to, only to have him trick us because you know, we we are trickable people. <laughs> yeah. We are trickable. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, that entire fight breaks out, and then we get to see um, Victor step up. You know, he gets to be a hero for a little bit. Um, and Saya, Saya's, you know, the the one who goes. I'm not taking these padwans with me. Like I'm watching out for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and Victor, surprisingly enough, is the one who steps up and he 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 plays as a, a noble hero unexpectedly. I was I was not expecting that. Were you? Mm, I don't know if I wasn't expecting it, but it wasn't shocking or anything like it, it yeah that's true yeah it's it's I not as surprising go, whoa yeah <laughs> that's how i that's how i uh show surprise so when you see me <laughs> in movie theaters and you know um the moment a big reveal happens if you hear anyone going whoa that's me that's me <laughs> Yeah, it definitely doesn't feel quite as surprising as seeing Helmut become a full-fledged death cultist. Yeah. Because yeah. I think with Victor, ever since that one story a couple volumes ago when he ended up saving uh, Marcus and his crew in Mexico, you kind of get that image of Victor dealing with a lot of like inner turmoil or just an internal examination of who he is and what he wants to do with himself. Yeah. So for him to decide to protect the freshman, I think it fits. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There was also another sort of uh, surprise moment here, which is at the very end, we, we discover that, the reason that the cultists are here is uh, Shabnam actually is the guy that led them here. Um, he goes, Gragda said calling you was a bad idea. She was wrong about everything. I think you're great. Um, <laughs> I don't know. We're, I, I wasn't expecting that. I mean, again, I, it's not necessarily like a shocking moment, but I guess I didn't. It put just raises more together. questions. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because it makes um, you wonder, like, what what did they know about this cult in the first place? What were they planning this whole time? Like, yeah, yeah, and it's just one panel of dialogue that doesn't really 
give us answers. It just kind of makes us wonder what the connection is. Yeah. Because it feels like the plots could have been... There There are several plots... There was no sense of connection between the two up until this point. <laughs> exactly. Like, there are several plot threads that seem kind of independent of each other. And then this is one way to quickly and neatly connect them, I guess. Yeah. I guess the one way that you can make sense of it is if we're supposed to buy Shabnam as this master of secrets, this uh, info info master, info collector, right? Then Mm -hmm. I guess he has a natural aptitude for just knowing things and marshalling resources. So it's not absolutely outside the realm of possibility that but but I guess the the other question is, if he knew about this cult, why 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 now why why exactly did he think that this was the right tool for this particular moment, right? What is he trying to accomplish? Is what I'm wondering. Yeah yeah right. Because like, won't Master Lin be mad if Shabnam kills all the other students? Yeah no exactly, and it's also a matter of he had to have called them at some point. It's not like he called them right then and there, right? Like they had to take time to get to where they were. So he realistically speaking should have some sort of plan in play from way back. And I don't know, maybe maybe we'll have to see in the following volumes, but as of right now, it just, maybe Shabnam was waiting. Maybe Shabnam was waiting this whole time for, the kids to all be in a group up in Lake Tahoe because Sacramento is closer to Lake Tahoe. And maybe these death cultists don't have a lot of gas to drive far away places. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm reaching here. (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) That's as good an explanation as any. (laughs) Maybe the death cultists are actually based in Truckee. We don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe they really love skiing. Maybe, maybe they moonlight as ski instructors They're at Mammoth or something. Death cultist. Yeah. <laughs> they come skiing down the hill to commit their acts of debauchery. <laughs> <laughs> They've got to make money, raise funds. Yeah. Stay in good shape. <laughs> All right. Anything else about this issue? Nope. All right. Let's go to issue 44, the final issue in this volume. Make it so. Marcus experiences a vision of happiness with his father before he comes back to reality where he is being dragged to his death by helmet. Back at the cabin, the kids make a break for it as Victor nobly puts himself in harm's way to break down the burning door. As the kids take on the cult members, Victor spots Petra's father leaving with Brandy's unconscious body. As he pursues them, he's shot in the leg. Victor turns to see that Jayla was the one who had shot him. He appeals to her to let him make up for his past mistakes by letting him save Brandy and the rest of them. But Jayla feels no sense of grace before she shoots him in the head, denying him any redemption. With Marcus tied down, Helmet proceeds to tell Mar- Helmet proceeds to tell Marcus about what life was like for him growing up in East Germany and how these experiences bound him to Petra because of qualities he saw in her that he also saw in himself. 
Maria arrives and frees Marcus, and together they take on Hillman. Back at the cabin, the kids take it take on the remaining cultists when Saya is ambushed by Sabnam, who handcuffs her to the burning building, leaving her only one option for escape, cutting off her own hand. As Marcus and Maria fight Helmet, as Marcus and Maria fight Helmet, Helmet gains the upper hand and takes Maria hostage. As he prepares to strike her down, Stefano arrives and shoots him. Stefano and Maria embrace, and he explains that he had run off to get a weapon and that he would never leave her behind. As Marcus stands there watching all this unfold, he picks up Stefano's dropped gun. Everything turns to black as two shots are fired. Yeah. The biggest things that surprised me here are the two deaths. Yep. Victor and Helmut. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I guess... There's a chance Helmut could be alive. I mean, I think he's That's what he I looks dead. Too. I'm not yeah. sure. I mean, we've the definitely thing is, seen where people the bullets take hit some, him. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we've definitely seen people in this comic take a lot of hits or get wounded to the point where I thought they would be grievous wounds, but apparently they were able to get better. But yeah. so I'm not, I'm not sure if that's the case with Helmut. Um, yeah. It's possible. I at this point I'm I'm assuming he's dead, but maybe he's actually alive. So yeah, I guess we'll have to see what happens next. But Victor definitely looks dead. I mean, I don't know how he can get better from getting shot through the brain. He uh took anti headshot pills. <laughs> uh they you know, he he got his immunity booster to bullets, uh to headshots. So, so he'll be fine. We'll see him good and healthy in the next issue. Jayla only <laughs> shot him with the paintball, not a real bullet. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the the bullet went and missed all of the vital parts of his brain, and <laughs> he's only gonna have like uh, migraines and some mild amnesia moving forward. Yeah, yeah. A brain is what yeah. like three pounds? Maybe, maybe yeah. uh, you can live if There's you lose like an ounce. Yeah, there's a lot of room there. Like maybe the bullet just grazed his brain. <laughs> grazed the middle of his brain. <laughs> grazed the exact dead center of his brain. <laughs> uh, oh man. Yeah. But it was another pretty action-packed issue. Um, a lot of fighting. Yeah, uh, I wasn't expecting Helmet to 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 die here, but uh, I I guess I also didn't really know what to. I I still don't know what to expect of what Marcus is gonna do with Stefano. Like it's clear that uh, there's still a lot of unresolved feelings that are going on between that he has, uh, you know, towards what she did. So it's a heck of a cliffhanger to leave on because now you're just like, the, the very last page of it is literally just black with these really bold uh, letters going blam, blam. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 
for all we know, as uh, Marcus is about to take the shot, uh, Victor shoots him. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a heck of a surprise. <laughs> right? He, uh, he, he found enough willpower to resist the bullet that had gone through his head to uh, stop Marcus. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Victor does have a heck of an end. Um, it, it kind of explains why Remender gave him so many noble moments towards this end, right? Um, and especially if you're considering there is something tragic about it, even though I'm not I'm not necessarily forgiving of um of Victor and what he did, but there's a tragedy in someone who sees the error of their ways and wants to do the right thing. And for him to come across uh Jayla who who's righteous in wanting to get revenge for her brother and what she says is it's it's pretty powerful like as she's aiming the gun at him he's he's over here on the ground he's been shot through the leg and he goes um not not for me to make up for what i did believe me i am sorry about your brother let me make up for it and there's this three panel page uh three panel sequence where she's holding the gun towards him and then she looks down and the gun lowers for a moment and it feels like okay like with everything as dire as it is, she might do it. But then and then when you turn the page, she just straight up shoots him in the head. And she goes, Willie doesn't get to grow up. And then you see his his dead face. And it's a close-up of Jayla again. And she's just she's crying. And then in the very final panel, she goes, and you don't ever get to feel better about it. Yeah. In that final yeah. panel, it also kind of looks like she's smiling, like she's relieved. It does. The, the previous panel, the silent panel, when she's crying, she just looks a little bit sad, sad. or or just emotional, uh, yeah. he- heavy. And then when she finally says, and you don't ever get to feel better about it, it feels like she's got a huge sense of enormous relief. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I do think that's powerful storytelling right there where Remender just dangles the possibility of like some redemption in Victor. And even though he's done a lot of horrible things and you, you've spent so much of the series hating him. Like there's this sense that, Oh, okay. He was, we've established this in the previous volume, previous volumes where, He's just a guy who was just conditioned by this school, just full of monsters. You know, he was mm-hmm. just doing what he needed to do to survive. So you get this sense that he might be growing as a person and maybe ultimately there'd be some way for him to maybe not ever fully redeem himself, but to not be the person that he is anymore right Mm -hmm. and there's just a lot of conflicting feelings there because maybe there's a part of you that wants him to be better but there's also a part of you that gets some sense of satisfaction of knowing that yeah it you know it's done now 
Willie has been avenged. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those were things that I was really thinking about at the end of reading this volume of Deadly Class, because it does feel like a lot of stuff happened in this volume. Remender hasn't been too precious with his characters, as we've mentioned. And, of course, seeing Gragda, Victor, and Helmut all die in this volume, that's probably what is going to linger with me the most. But we, we already talked a bit about Gragda's death in that issue, and that was like a really great scene. So I, I really have no qualms or even any questions there. But with Victor and Helmut, I definitely had to think about what happened and whether I appreciated it or not. And yeah, like what you were saying just now about Victor, those were all thoughts that I also wrestled through as I was considering the story. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was I was thinking at first, like, huh, that's how Victor's story ends. It, it's kind of anticlimactic. But then I thought about it some more. And I don't know. I don't really... Having some more time to, like, digest what happened yeah maybe it's not really anticlimactic because yeah you can say he he, was abrupt (laughs) yeah kind of abrupt i guess because he he did play a pretty big role up to this in the series uh up to this point and it's not like i felt that victor shouldn't have died and i i also do think that his death was a great scene with the dialogue and just the the scenes that you just described with Jayla and him. But it it also kind of feels like Victor died so that he could be a prop for Jayla to rise in her significance in the story. Hmm. Cause we get hmm. uh, the past couple chapters or the past couple volumes of deadly class where we get to slowly see Victor's change of heart or maybe change of heart is too strong. Maybe it's more just, he's starting to, wrestle internally with himself with the idea of who he is but like once we started to see that happen in him it started to feel like okay this is a character who has the potential to change a character who has the potential to grow and you know with with storytelling in general when you have characters that actually grow and change in a way that feels believable you know, that's the kind of thing that sucks you in. It's it's like just the quality exactly. of good storytelling. And, yeah. and not only that, but it makes you interested in wanting to see how the character is going to change. But yeah. here, it's like right when it starts to get more interesting, you know, th- the previous scene had him being the one who was willing to defend the helpless little freshman. He sacrifices his body to like charge through a burning door and, you know, get caught up in the thick of the fray against these death cultists. Now he's going to try and help rescue Brandy from that other death cultist. You know, it's starting to get interesting for him because you're starting to see, like you said earlier, this more noble side of a character that has been extremely vicious and cruel in, in the past. Yeah. So like right when it's getting more interesting for him, Mm-hmm. We see that it just gets him nowhere. <laughs> like he doesn't really get yeah. that chance to to actualize himself into, you know, like he basically he doesn't get a chance to become an adult. Is what happens. Yeah, here. it's just yeah, 
he's he's gonna forever be the way he was, the jock in high school with uh, a penchant for bullying and and doing all those things. Yeah, but I, I think after I thought about it some more, I'm a little bit more okay with his death because of how his final moments played out and mm-hmm. and even just like the bleak the bleakness of it all. Like there's a, a big sense of despair when you consider his story. Like again, he he obviously did a whole bunch of nasty things, so it's not necessarily that we have to forgive him, him or or feel sorry for him or or anything like that it's just there's something bleak and despairing about his story something tragic about it because he Absolutely. he kind of was shaped by all the things that happened in his life like we learned about his family in previous issues and then all the stuff with him and Marcus's crew when they were in Mexico and then now uh he's almost like turning this new corner into becoming a slightly more noble figure it still ends up with him getting a bullet in the head yeah i feel like that's the gift of a talented writer is to be able to give you these feelings of internal conflict as the reader right it's yeah if if rick remender is kind of the god of their world it's his ability it's a testament to his ability as a writer to be able to take you as a reader and make you hate someone and more than that take someone that you hate and find something redeeming in that and then make you feel conflicted about what you think about this character because of the circumstances that they've been put through by the end of it yeah so it's complicated it makes you great as a yeah, as storytellers, Remender and Craig make you feel these complex things about these characters because you're not just like you're not just gonna feel one specific way. You know, you're not gonna just you don't necessarily pump your fist and and root for this guy to die because yeah. he's a bad guy. I mean, he's definitely yeah. done a lot of bad things, but it makes you question like, is it possible for someone like him to change to be better? I mean, I feel like yeah. Of course, if we were talking about a real person, it'd be a lot different. You know, it it would be pretty hard for me to be like, oh yeah, let's give this murderer another chance at society. You know, he, <laughs> you know, this hardened killer can can change his his ways. Like that that would be a really hard thing for me to say. I, actually, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be able to do that. But <laughs> like when we're if we're just looking at this as another, uh, if we're, again, if we're looking at Deadly Class as like an allegory for high school, right? It's like thinking back to the the jock in high school that used to throw spitballs at the quiet kids just because they could, you know, and, and you see that happen. And, and yet because they're more popular and have more friends and they're bigger and stronger, it doesn't really feel like you can do anything about it. And all you can really do is just sit quietly and hate them. But yeah. then it's like now, like you take that type of person and then, show that type of person start to slowly change that that's what's interesting to me because then now you as a a reader you kind of like it makes you question whether um you actually can either forgive somebody like that or Mm -hmm. uh you know it's not you can't just be like stuck in this hate for somebody 
because he was he was just a teenager, you know, like he was just doing stupid teenage stuff. And if if he ever grew up to become an adult, would he still be a dumb jock who would throw spitballs at people's hair? I don't know. I mean, maybe he would, but if he stopped doing that and recognized the error of his ways and tried to be a better person, okay, you know, I can I can give that person another chance. But now that Victor crossed paths with Jayla, uh, she got her revenge and he doesn't really have anything left. So we don't get to see that change in his life. It, it doesn't matter if he had the potential to turn the corner because, you know, he's just yeah. done. There is a sense of lost, missed opportunity, lost potential there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then Helmut's death, that, that one is more of a head scratcher for me because I I still think it was kind of unsatisfying. Like I I feel like I have to see what happens in the next volume to understand mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um if there's gonna be any more explanation about him. Cause yeah, it's like why or how did he even join this cult? It just seems like his reappearance here in Tahoe raises more questions. And doesn't really give us any hints that point yeah. to even the most remotely satisfying answer. There if isn't that much time that's thing where, yeah, if it just becomes this thing where it's like for the sake of shock value, I just wanted to tell a story where a friend and an ally turns into an enemy because what what greater form of drama is there than that, right? Then. Like it's about execution. You need to be able to mm-hmm. like establish that, set it up, and like have it be feasible when it does finally happen. Otherwise, it's you know, it's wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he kind of uh, does look like a wrestler in his new outfit. He does. He does. He does. It's just one of those things where, in the next volume, I I don't really know what they could do to help me make more sense out of this or to help me appreciate what happened yeah Cause like would they really just go into a some kind of flashback showing us the last couple of weeks to explain how he decided to join up with them or why he decided to join up with, with the death cultists or are we going to get some scenes where we have his other remaining classmates Tasawi and zenzel are they going to be like oh what happened like how wh- like what what could we have done differently to to help him or whatever you know it's like the kind of thing where when you kill a character one of the most uh effective storytelling routes that you can go is to show what kind of impact his death has on the people around him so i guess i i would say i'm optimistic that this story development can lead to more great moments for Tosawi and Zenzel, but it's still going to leave me with a nagging sense of loss because, yeah, it just feels like we could have used like another issue to show us what he was up to these past couple of weeks that brought him to this point. I don't know. Did you feel unsatisfied by it or were you pretty much okay? Um... I've mentioned this before with other series and I think I think what I've said stands uh like I acknowledge that there are things that happen here that are like 
that just feel random, right? Where it just feels like, wait, Helmet just he he hooks up with Petra's dad, and a couple of weeks later, he's fully immersed in this cult. Okay, <laughs> and <laughs> and what I was gonna say was, I think uh, with writers that have earned my trust, um, a lot of the times there are certain story beats and certain story details where I can tell myself, okay, I'll, I'll go with it for the sake of, you know, for the sake of whatever he's trying to, to write or do. So, you know, I, I'm willing to, if the rest of the series is good enough, then there are certain plot points that I can kind of ignore uh, because you know he's only human right mm, <laughs> there's mm-hmm. there are times where uh, not every piece of work is 100% on fire all the time I, I can think of like a bunch of comics where there's one item here or there that makes me kind of question it but the rest of the, the work is so good that it's just something that you got to live with. It's just like, oh, uh, he made a choice, you know? That's true. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. So in this particular instance, um, yeah, like I, there are definitely things I find questionable, but I'm, he has enough of my confidence that I can wait to see uh, what he does in the future. And, you know, I'm hopeful that, he finds a way to address these things and if he doesn't again i'll i'll have to wait to see how the series ends up but up to this point it's been an enjoyable series mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. if we get to the end of it and if everything else works and this is the one volume that just happens to be a a, a weaker volume because there's plot loopholes and um you know loopholes in logic that don't necessarily make the greatest amount of sense because they just seem like they're conveniences then if i like everything else it's just gonna have to be one of those things where i just kind of shrug my shoulders and go you gotta yeah. forgive it yeah exactly mm-hmm. unless unless this is the turning point for the series where everything after this is just like <laughs> exponentially <laughs> worse and it just becomes a downhill crash <laughs> then then i got nothing <laughs> okay <laughs> okay know? we shall see we shall see we shall see indeed. Do you think there's any chance that Helmut is actually still alive? Is he going to survive this? I actually do. I mean, he certainly has, maybe this isn't saying much, but he certainly has a higher chance than uh, Victor because Victor was straight up. He was just shot dead center in his head. Whereas Victor if, or, or Helmut, if you look at him, he was shot in the shoulder, like, right down the middle of his upper chest, like close to his throat, and then his other shoulder. That's where the three like entry points look. So there's a chance that he's survived, but when you turn the page, you do see that he's got sort of dead eyes on the ground. So maybe he just sleeps with his eyes open. Maybe, maybe. But what I was going to say is, um, I think we've observed at this point Remender's ability to 
give himself enough wiggle room so that if he needs to if he intends to bring a character back he can yeah so there we go do you think there's any chance that gragda is alive no she did she did. Uh, <laughs> she's straight dead. <laughs> what if out of all three of them, she's the one who is actually still alive? <laughs> That'd be funny. <laughs> That'd be really funny. I'd, I'd really have to question that at that point. It's like at at that point, I don't even know what uh, what Reminder is doing. I, I'm just, I would just, I'd just be scratching my head. <laughs> uh, you know, she just took those. <laughs> Anti-axe pills before she got killed. Anti-axe pills and her anti-fire vaccines. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. You got any other thoughts? Nope. I think that's all I got for this volume. I'm just ready to see if we get any answers about Helmut in the next one. Sounds good to me. I'm just as curious. I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm chomping at the bit to see what the next volume brings. Hopefully, we get some more answers. We get some resolutions that make us a little more okay with how this volume turned out. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did still enjoy this volume just for the amount of plot stuff that did happen. So, you know, I don't want to imply that we were all down about it, you know, because yeah, there was a bunch of fun stuff that did happen in this volume, but it's just there are certain glaring things that are going on in there that you can't help but just wonder, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just one of those things where we got to see how it all plays out at, in the end, and that's going to yeah. bring a lot of clarity. Yeah. Well, if nothing else, uh, our socials are we're at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com if you want to hit us up on gmail uh if you want to you know dm us we're at between the gutters on instagram uh or on threads we are on x x you're <laughs> on x so you can x at us um you know just 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 remember that we here at Between the Gutters, we are absolute chills. And every every week, we're going to have a different sponsor. You know, we'll take anybody who's willing to give us money. This week, our episode was brought to you by the KKK. Because <laughs> whoa, whoa, like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> like Woody Allen said, I wouldn't want to be part of a group that would have me as a member. What's more exclusive than that? Uh <laughs> Uh, the KKK because all of the best letters comes in threes. A A A X X X. That should be their new uh, slogan. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Next week we will be discussing the comic Barrier by Brian K. Vaughn and Marcus Martin. So we hope to find you there, or we hope to see you. Well. What am I saying? Just tune in <laughs> to the podcast. Listen to us. Listen to us. All right. You know how desperate we are for money. We're taking. We're getting uh, sponsored by hate groups here. <laughs> That's how desperate we are for money. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. Peace out. Bye.